Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today, and I'm speaking with Bob DeWay, Gospel of Grace's teacher and theologian and author of Critical Issues Commentary. In this series, we are discussing Dutch Sheets' book titled Intercessory Prayer. And last week, we talked a little bit about the Dominion theology and links to the new Apostolic Reformation. Today, we're just going to discuss a few passages that he uses in his book. And we're going to look at the idea of birthing and whether or not our prayers release God to do things. So starting with that, there's a quote from the bottom of page 36. And here's what Dutch Sheets says. Why then am I supposed to ask him for something he already wants to do if it's not that my asking somehow releases him to do it? And he's going to go on and look at Elijah and Daniel to show that our prayers release God to act. Before we discuss those two passages, let's, let me just ask you, do our prayers release God? God is made possible release from sins through messianic salvation. Right. Release in the Greek of faces and a theomy. You find it in Luke 4 when uh, Jesus comes into his hometown, announces release from sins. So Dutch Sheets gets the categories wrong. Okay. Okay. So his idea of release is that God wants to do a great thing on the earth, but he looking for somebody to help him get it done. Right. And so God is bound and he needs to be released by us if we do it right. But again, reading things into this, it's not the point. And besides that, Elijah is a special, unique prophet. And we don't deny that. Of course, that's true. But if you read the Gospels, you'll see on the Mount of Transfiguration, here's Elijah and Moses. Yes. And and uh, Jesus is there, and the voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Right. And so the whole point is that Jesus is God the Son, who's greater than Elijah and uh, Moses, and he doesn't need us we need him yes okay so they really don't give justice to the doctrine of the deity of christ the eternal purposes of god release from sin uh, the gospel preaching and various things that we know are god's will right and so dutch sheets portrays this as this big problem And if the right man shows up and prays and gives God the release he needs, then glorious things are going to happen. Okay. And so that's his version of it. So that's really how he uses this. He takes the passage in 1 Kings 18, where there was a drought and Elijah prayed and then God sent the rain. So then he uses this to prove that it was Elijah's prayers that released him to bring about the rain. Well, we're not denying that Elijah 
was a great man of God. Absolutely, that's true. But the claim that somehow we need a new Elijah company or whatever the claims are going to be here, just not true. Right. And I would say that Elijah prayed and God sent the rain. That tells us that Elijah spoke for God. Yeah, he was a prophet of God. And also, we're not belittling the importance of prayer, but this is a blessed privilege that God allows us access to his throne of grace and that we confess our dependence on him and we pray for one another and we ask God for wisdom and we show that we need him in all things. And I think another test is that when things don't go the way we wish they would, we don't get bitter and say, well, God wouldn't answer my prayers. Maybe I didn't go to the right seminar. Right. We should humbly depend on God and trust him and find encouragement that he loves us and he cares for us and resist. Dear listeners, resist the siren song of we're here's the great man of God. Here's the great prophetess. Listen to this person. They know what they're doing. You don't. Right. And so people go to the seminars and they get the books and they're hoping to find some secret. Okay. But any ordinary Christian who knows the Lord Jesus Christ and has access in prayer to the throne of grace, he hears us, he cares for us, and he works in our lives. Yes. That's so much more simple than this claim that we can be the next Elijah. Right. Now, James did use that as an illustration. I'm not belittling that. Yes. And Dutch Sheets points out that that passage in James 5. Mm-hmm. But he takes it a little bit differently than well, what that, we do. Get, excuse me. Let me say something about that. If you look at James's point, it's quite different than Dutch Sheets. Right. James said he's a man of like nature as we are. Yes. That is a fallen sinner. Okay. And so that's the one thing that the pietists don't want to acknowledge is that they aren't any more profound than ordinary other ordinary sinners or people who have their sins forgiven. Right. And there's not some super saint that doesn't have the same problems that everybody else has. Right. And we can all bring our problems before the throne of grace and we can all pray for one another. And we can know that God hears our prayers and answers them. It's not that we're saying prayer isn't important. It's just that the way he is presenting prayer is not a biblical view of prayer. That's exactly right. And it's an honor that we can gather in his name and we can pray for one another and we can lift each other up before the throne of grace and that God uses people in our lives to encourage us, to pray for us, to send a card, to think about what we're going through. Um, That's what Christianity is about. And it's very profound, but these glorious claims of the latter day apostles and prophets that are so utterly profound compared to the rest of us. It's just discouraging. If you think that that's 
encouraging because, well, I'm going to be one of them. I'm part of that movement. Just wait. At some point, you'll be discouraged. Right. Unless you live to be 110 and never get sick and you're wealthy, you're probably going to feel like you failed. Yes. And I would say that it's a blessing and a privilege for us to be able to pray for one another. And God does use us to work out his will. And that's a blessing for us. And that's part of how God works in our lives. But God gets the glory. He, he uses fallen sinners, even like me, to accomplish his will. But they're flipping this around at making God the needy one who needs a mighty person like us. It's so backwards. Yes, and we also need to have a better theological understanding of the nature of the church age. Yes. The Great Commission. So here on page 37, he says, well, seven is the number of completion, so you have to pray until the task is accomplished. But let's ask ourselves this. Why are we here on the earth? And why is the gospel still going out? Because the Lord isn't done yet with this part of history. We're still in the church age. Right. So what are we praying for? Where the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers. Yes. So we're here that the, so the gospel will go out. Okay. And, and, and the, yeah. We give people the means by which they can be reconciled to God, forgiveness of sins, redemption, atonement, being grafted in to the body of Christ, being part of the family of God, all of these things that we learn in the scripture. And that's so profound. We don't need to make sure that we're the, the latest Elijah. Right. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this birthing, because this is something that's going to come up repeatedly through the book. So this is the first time it shows up, and this is on page 37. Okay. And he says, then why, if it was God's will, idea, and timing, did it take human prayers to birth, he has in quotation marks, the rain? Then he says, Elijah was in the posture of a woman in that culture giving birth symbolizing the concept of travailing prayer. Now, the first time I read this, I kind of marked it with a question mark. I didn't know what he was talking about. You mention this birthing in your article on the new apostolic reformation. Yes. And so I'm just going to quote from your article and we can discuss whether or not this is what he's talking about. So in your article, this is from issue number 103. You can find it at the website, cicministry.org. You say the basic idea is that ordinary Christians throughout church history have been colossal failures that God is, was going to fall upon certain persons by his Holy Spirit and impregnate them so that they could give birth to something entirely new. The new breed of man would be exalted saints with holiness and power never known before. Yes. That's now, what I'm saying. Yeah, which is shocking. It is shocking. Well, I had people, when that idea came out in the early 80s, were shocked that I didn't want to listen to it. <laughs> I had enough of that nonsense. But yeah, the, the new breed of man, 
Yeah, there's these. Uh, it may have been associated with the Kansas City prophets. I'm not sure, but it wouldn't be surprising. Yes. Okay. So, in other words, what exactly is a new breed of man? They sure sounds like they make it out to be the super apostles and higher order of Christians. Well, they'll call it the Elijah Company. Yes, I, I've heard that. Yeah, mm -hmm. then I trace this all the way back. There was a mystic by the name of Jane Lead. Okay. It's Philadelphian society. There's always going to be some grand claims of people having recovered power, miracles, prophets, apostles, that ordinary Christians have uh, missed or fumbled away or whatever. And the claims are so grandiose. It's just amazing. Yeah, and, I've yeah. heard them, and they don't care. Honestly, they don't care. I've interviewed people who got out of those movements and asked to sit down and have coffee with me, this one couple. And they said, once people think there's something wrong with this, most of them just leave and they never be, they don't even serve God. Wow. Because they're going to be this 24 hour, 24 seven Elijah company, all this grand claim. And then when they realize that they're at the best, just ordinary Christians, they give up. Yeah. And but so they're going to birth a new move of God and bring forth an Elijah company it's going to do greater miracles than Jesus and his apostles. Wow. And then all throughout this book, we have Christians need to birth the will of God here on earth. Yes. And we'll see that later as we get into the further in this book. Yes, we will. It, it comes up. Oh, he spends a long time about on birthing and travail uh, all throughout the book. Just so our listeners realize what that's all about. There's this, this assumption that some prophetic spirit comes upon these great people of God and they have a vision and they're going to give birth to this new move or this new reality. And they speak it into existence. They get details about it and they pray those details. And whether this has anything to do with anything about the gospel and the church is serious is a serious question, but that's how they look at things. Right. And so then even in this situation in First Kings 18, Elijah prayed for rain. God sent rain. Mm -hmm. Elijah's prayers did not birth rain. Right. So this is this is reading so much into the text that is not there. There's a lot of ways that he manipulates this and turns it into a process in different steps. So for example, why did Elijah have to ask seven times? Seven is the biblical number of completion. And I'm sure God was teaching us that we must pray until the task is accomplished. I think we mentioned that earlier. That's just not the point of that text. Well, right. And how do we know that that's the task that we're supposed to get done? Right. It's almost, it's kind of bordering on the allegorical use of scripture, oh, scripture yeah. that we've discussed before. The allegory. And yeah. These, there are different versions of this. Okay. I think, well, this is a kind of a 
charismatic miracles and power version. But when I was at that uh, conference out there where Rick Warren was going to do his peace plan and solve the world's problems by using business, government, and church as a three-legged stool. Okay. People from all over, all over the world, there's all this heady, this is really amazing. All these things are happening. And some years go by, nothing comes of it. Yeah. It flops. And it always does. Right. Because if you read the Bible, you get the point of what the church age is, that the gospel will be preached throughout the world and that people who believe have forgiveness of sins. They're, they become part of the family of God. They're built upon the rock. They're part of the church, ultimately, eternally. And we're not building some grand, glorious movement on the earth. Right. And, and that's the air of this post-millennialism that's just ubiquitous. Yes. We're going to do some great, glorious thing, and we can't believe that. You mean God is going to save sinners through the blood of Jesus and make them part of his family? Well, can't you come up with something better than that? Right. Can't you solve all the world's problems? Can't you uh, have a dominion where we force everybody to be Christian, whether they want to or not? Can't we get everybody healed? Can't we do better miracles? And so I think it's dishonoring to God that we're not willing to accept the call to preach Christ in the gospel. Yes. And just to show this is exactly what Dutch Sheets is not doing. There's a <laughs> there's a quote. So this is on page 38, and he's quoting Andrew Murray, who was a, a pietist. And yep. there was a lot, lot of troubling doctrine from Andrew Murray. But here's what he says. Andrew Murray succinctly speaks of our need to ask. Now, this is quoting Andrew Murray. God's giving is inseparably connected with our asking. Only by intercession can that power be brought down from heaven, which will enable the church to conquer the world. Page 38, I see it right here. Yeah. So I would like one of these pietists, although I'm sure Andrew Murray is no longer on the scene of history, but why don't one of these pietists prove their post-millennial claims from Scripture? Right. I've been debating this. I've challenged people about it. I believe it's unbiblical. Yes. Okay. So how is the church going to conquer the world? And where are we called to do that? Well, according to the dominionists, they, they find that in Genesis. They find it in uh, Noah's commission. They find it in Matthew 28. But it's unbiblical. I've published articles about that. Yeah. All right. Well, before we run out of time, let's also talk about this idea of a cumulative amount of power stored up in prayer. Okay. <laughs> so we'll have to make it fast, but we can do it. All so right. he, he also says in the book, page 38, I've become convinced that in some situations they actually release cumulative amounts of God's power until enough has been released to accomplish his will. 
So he's continuing to talk about more and praying and praying until it's accomplished. So uh, apparently this is cumulative. And then he uses Daniel to prove this point. Well, Daniel, what was revealed to Daniel was God's future plans for history. Right. Okay. And the, so what he uses to show this cumulative prayer is, is the passage where, and I'm just going to quote from his book on page 39, says, no verse in Daniel, as there is with Elijah, specifically says Israel was restored because of Daniel's prayers. But with the emphasis given to them, the insinuation is certainly there. We do know that the angel Gabriel was dispatched immediately after Daniel started praying. However, it took him 21 days to penetrate the warfare in the heavens with the message to inform Daniel that your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. And then he says, I can't help wondering how many promises from God have gone unfulfilled because he can't find the human involvement he needs. That is a false claim, an invalid implication. That's false prophecy. Right. He's taking a passage on a divine council worldview and making an invalid claim about it. Yes. So can't find somebody. So I guess it's not going to happen. Uh, you know, is there some reason why we can't have solid theology? <laughs> Is it that hard? It, especially today. It, it, there is so much good teaching out there and so many books and software and everything you can use to learn the biblical languages, to study God's word. Yeah. There's really no excuse. We, unlike any other generation, we have the ability to know God's word right at our fingertips. Tools. This is the perfect time for me. Um, uh, when I first learned Greek, I had to do it all grinding through paper books, and uh, it was very, very difficult. Yeah. Now, now you can learn hard. Greek on YouTube. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> it's just, I've never had so many tools. But, you know, the sad thing is very few people think it's even important to use the tools. Yeah. So we have the tools. We can study. And I'm hoping some people will get excited about learning hermeneutics, learning the Greek learning how to found a scripture and understand what God said. Yeah. These fantastic claims and secret churches and apostolic churches and what have you are exciting movements, but they're not biblical. Right. What's the use of having a massive Christian group where most people don't even know Christ? Yeah, it's not. And, you know, for as much as they want God's kingdom to come and they think that their work is going to do this, really what we need to do is to preach the gospel so, so that God will add his people to his church in the fullness of time when the, all of, when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in and he institutes the last days and his new heavens and his new earth. Our role in that is preaching the gospel. Yes. And, you know, uh, every time we preach the gospel and someone hears and believes, they're, they're part of the kingdom. They're part of the, the redeemed company of people that know Christ. That'll never be taken away. Yes. And 
we don't have to have accolades. We don't have to look like we're some great group or whatever, but people are being added uh, as they are converted and being part of the family of God. Why has that become such a pathetic thing that hardly even gets on anybody's radar? Right. That's that, that is our primary focus here on earth. The, the great commission, the preaching of the gospel, it's not right. some secondary afterthought. We it's don't need signs and wonders and miracles first. So we need to preach the gospel. Yeah. And then teach the word of God because people, when they're born of God, they're born with a hunger for the truth always. Yes. And if you don't tell people the truth, then they're, they're going to be frustrated because Christians have a hunger for the truth. Yep. So here's an interesting one. He says at the end of this chapter, oh, Jack Hayford says this. Prayer is essentially a partnership of the redeemed child of God working hand in hand with God towards the realization of his redemptive purposes on earth. So then you really have prayer as the means of preaching the gospel rather than preaching the gospel as the means of preaching the gospel. Well, we're supposed to pray that God would send forth laborers. That, and we've got plenty to pray about. Yeah. But if we never preach the gospel, then what's the point of any of it? Right. And he says here, let's rise to the occasion and embrace the incredible invitation to be co-laborers with God to be carriers of his awesome Holy Spirit and ambassadors for his great kingdom. Let's represent him, awaken us to our destiny, Lord. Well, if we were talking about the gospel preaching, then yes, but he's talking about prayer. Uh, yeah, there we go with that word destiny again. Remember that? Yeah. That one group, destiny image that has all these word of faith teachers. Yeah. We want something that sounds really romantic or exciting, not just ordinary thing like forgiveness of sins. Well, and the reality for a lot of us is maybe our destiny is to just lead an average Christian life where we are faithful husbands and wives and we raise our kids and we do our job and we preach the gospel and we care for the body of Christ and we pray for one another and we serve one another and we and then the Lord calls us home to glory. There's, that is a good thing. We don't have to assume everyone is supposed to have some great and magnificent destiny. I wrote an article one time, a long time ago on pietism. And I made the claim, there are no extraordinary Christians, but being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. Yes. Now, I've, let me explain that in light of 1 Corinthians 4 or 5. Okay. We may indeed be extraordinary Christians, but we can't know who they are. Right. Because if we did, we're making judgment before the time. So as far as we know, we're ordinary Christians, meaning we know Christ, our sins are forgiven, we're born of God, we're part of the family of God, and God uses us in various ways in his body. Amen. And that's what it looks like to be a quote, ordinary Christian. And that's a very good thing to be an ordinary Christian. Exactly. And anything beyond that, we can't know anyhow. Yep. 
All right, we are out of time for this edition of Critical Issues Commentary Radio. You can access this episode and many others, as well as years worth of articles at the website, cicministry.org. While you're there, click on contact and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We want to encourage you all to stand firm in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this is Jessica Kramis. And Bob DeWay. We'll see you next week.